So with that said, we're going to go over Romans 5, verses 1 through 11. I'm going to ask somebody to read the first paragraph, then someone to read the second paragraph. I have it on your page. This is in the English Standard Version. I typically try to put another translation up there uh, just, just so you can see, because most of you carry an ESV. I try to put something else, but I put this in the ESV for you. So can I have somebody read verses 1 through 5, and then somebody read verses 6 through 11? Right. The first thing I want to deal with is we've been going through the book of Romans, of course. We've made it to chapter 5, and we see that therefore. We always ask, what is the therefore, therefore? See that meme with the kid going, Ooh, yeah, we get it. Uh, anyway, we have been justified, declared not guilty by faith. How has Paul in Romans 1 through 4 defended his theme of a person being justified, declared not guilty by faith alone? How has he done that in chapters 1 through 4? Yes, he used Abraham. And would you want to tell us about Abraham? Yes. And according to 15.6, he was circumcised after he believed. It wasn't the work of the law that, that saved him. It was his faith. And Abraham is, is, a, is, is a big example that Paul uses. We have to study Abraham to know how God saves people. And God clearly justified Abraham based upon his faith first. Then he received circumcision. What else did he use? Did Paul use anything else in chapters 1 through 3 maybe? Is right. Paul has spent a lot of time in chapters 1 and 2 showing us our sin. Chapter 3 showing us our plight of sin. I believe Rob taught that sermon. You would have to be a fool to walk away saying, okay, we're not sinners. And then in chapter 3, he talks about we are justified by faith and faith alone. You don't even have to like put Abraham in there. He actually just says it and comes out and says it. And he'll say it multiple times and in multiple different ways. You would have to be a fool to deny that, that 
Paul is trying to teach us that we are justified by faith and faith alone. But the discussion question is this. With Paul making this doctrine of justification by faith alone crystal clear, why do people still deny this teaching? Why do they think they have some inherent good? Explain that, Mr. Rob Shepard. Absolutely sure. Yes, sir, Mr. Brown. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and justification is crucial. Does anybody, and, and Paul will spend almost 11 chapters, I just gave the answer away. <laughs> he spends 11 chapters speaking about justification by faith and what God has done. And you don't see what you should do in sanctification to chapter 12 in the book of Romans. You can't do what you're called to do until you understand what Christ has done for you first. Until you understand the Spirit has changed you first. And he's going to spend a lot of detail because the Lord wants you to know what he has done for you in order that you can live for him rightly. Which brings us to Roman numeral 2, peace with God. We see in verse 1 clearly, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, he says it again, as you're going to see this over and over again. He'll say it different ways and different ways throughout Romans, but it's just clear. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, does the righteousness give man inner peace? That is correct. So, so, so there is a little truth there when someone says, well, we have inner peace, and you'll hear some people say, this is talking about your inner peace. Well, th that's not what Paul is going with here. But I didn't want to negate the whole, you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater. Though the text isn't teaching that. I know what the inner peace I had when, when Christ came into my life. I could sleep. 
I wasn't afraid of hell. There's a lot of things I wasn't afraid of anymore. And the Lord, as, as the more I grow, the more I'm like, okay, there, there, there is a peace. But this is not what he's speaking about. What kind of peace is Paul speaking about here? Absolutely. This is Mount Senior. Some of you, have, I know so many of you, a lot of you, I would say, have taken Mounts Junior. He's got this little blue book for Greek. I know Mingledorf's going, please don't mention that anymore. <laughs> but his dad is a, is a world-class scholar, and he says, as Paul used the term, it does not primarily depict a state of inner tranquility. It is external and objective. To have peace with God means to be in a relationship with God in which all the hostility caused by sin has been removed. I thought that was such a great, out of all the commentaries I read, I was like, this, I, I, I like this. Why do we need to be positionally at peace with God? Are we at war? Amen. Were we at war with God? Was there, was there a war that was taking place between those who are not in Christ and God? Enmity. Well, James will call it, right? Friendship with the world is enmity with God. That is war. That, that, is, a, that is a war term in the original Greek. Is there another passage maybe? Colossians 121. Would someone want to read that? You can go to Genesis. I, I was just throwing something out there. 121. No, that's good. This is who we are without Christ. Hostile toward God and, and his word. Alienated from God. This thought that God is the father of all is not in scripture. Right? The brotherhood of man does not exist in scripture. The brotherhood of man comes when Jesus Christ makes us all one. Jesus prayed that his people would be one in Christ. This is his high priestly prayer in John 17. It's when Christ comes that Christ is the one that makes us one, makes us brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, whoever your person is that loves Jesus and names Jesus by name, and they're your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's who God is the father of. He's not the father of all. Not everyone has that access to the father through the mediator, Jesus Christ. It is through the blood of Jesus. And when the blood of Jesus comes, you're no longer at war with God. Something we learned, so I wish I could just go take David Center's Bavink study. It was so good. I walked away going, this was amazing, one of my favorite nights, because I learned that we are no longer at war with God, and there was justification. I walked away, and if you were there, you probably walked away going, man, my heart was warmed, because I heard that God loves me, he died for me on the cross, and now I have access to God the Father who is holy and righteous, and he doesn't condemn me, he doesn't crush me, he loves me. I was like, this is the best thing I've heard all week. We're not at war with God. The war's done. The war's done. And we live far below, this is what Sinclair says, we live 
so far below the privileges that we have in Christ. We don't go, go to the Lord enough. We don't sing to him enough. We don't participate in the means of grace enough. We have all these privileges that we live far below. Which brings us to theories of the atonement. I wanted to bring this up just a little bit. Uh, just so you know, uh, there are different theories of the atonement. Now, with that said, minus the second one, I didn't even get into the governmental theory, which is a Methodist thing. If you want more information, you can come see me on it. David probably knows this better because that's has to do with church history. But there's a little bit of truth in some of these. Like, look at the first theory of the atonement, the moral influence theory, that Jesus Christ came and died in order to bring about a positive change to humanity. Now, that's a simple way to put it, but this has to do with sanctification. Augustine really, really held, held to this moral influence that when Jesus Christ died, the Spirit comes, and now you can live out your faith. We believe that. Hey, hey, we believe that. We believe that. We believe the Holy Spirit comes and changes you. The thief on the cross, as uh, Mr. Gibson would say, not only did God wash away his sins, but he also washed his mouth out with soap, right? He did both right there on the cross. We see it for our eyes. But that's not the heartbeat. The same way the ransom theory, we completely deny this, that, that Satan has all the souls and he's in charge and Jesus Christ had to come and battle Satan when that's just... That's blasphemous, I believe. But Christus Victor, when you read number three, that Jesus dies in order to defeat the powers of evil, such as sin, death, and the devil. Well, we believe that. He crushed the head of the enemy. He defeated death, right? We believe that throughout scriptures when we read that one of the things the gospel does is Jesus Christ is victorious. He's our victorious king. The satisfaction theory, Anselm, I believe it was 11th century. Was it 12th, David? Yeah, he likes it. Twelfth, okay, I'll take it. He put the theory out that, that what? That, no, Satan's not in charge. You people don't know what you're talking about. Jesus Christ doesn't have to make any type of payment. He died. But the problem with the, the satisfaction theory is he almost that, that, that God sent Jesus to make a payment to death. That their justice had to be done. Because man sinned, someone had to die and Jesus came and died. But that doesn't tell the whole story, which brings us to penal substitutionary atonement. It's the theory that Jesus dies to satisfy God's wrath against human sin. Jesus is punished penal substitution. He's, he's legally punished in the place of sinners. He is our substitute. The wrath that we deserved because of our sin, because God is holy. One little sin deserved infinite wrath. I've said this before, if your view of hell is just the South Park view, I'm sorry I said that, I grew up in the 90s, but the South Park view where, 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 where Satan's having a good time and your friends are drinking beer and you're talking about things, if that's your view of hell, then the holiness of God is really low. But the hotter your hell is, that means the holier your God is. And the more you think of God as holy, that means the hotter your hell is going to be because it's the exact opposite level. Like, your brain has to do that. The wrath that we deserve, the hell that we deserve, were poured upon Christ. This is where Paul is going with this. That's how much peace you have. The war's done. 
you will never in a million years have to face the penalty of your sin because Jesus faced it for you. And every time you live as if you deserve some type of penalty, what you're doing is saying the blood of Jesus is not sufficient. And Satan wants you to live there, just so you know. Because if you're living there, what are you not doing? Living here, having a smile on your face, loving people, hugging people, telling them how much God loves them, serving in the church. No, you're living here, barely hanging. That's where Satan wants you to live. But we have so much privilege through the blood of Jesus Christ, which I want to get to the heart of the gospel. This is where Paul in this chapter is really talking about the heart of the gospel. Now, does anybody know what the first picture is in Roman numeral 3? Minus, who said that? That is correct. I was about to say before all the people who work in the medical field. <laughs> you get paid to know what that is. I'm not asking you. Does anybody know the second one is? That's correct. No thyroid. Thing gives you problems there, don't it? And the third one, of course, is easy, right? What is it? Yeah, it looks like the kidney bean, right? And, of course, the last one is the heart. People live without gallbladders every day. Of course, people can live without thyroid. You need the synthroid, though. It helps. You can live with one kidney. You technically, I guess, could live without kidneys, but you'd have to go to the machine every single day. But you can't live without a heart. That's the reason we say, what is the heart of the issue? What is the heart? Because we know it's the heart is the one that, that pumps the blood. You could be brain dead, but as long as your heart is pumping, right, you're, you're, you're still alive. It's the heart of the issue. You hear that all the time, but you don't think about why people say the heart of the issue. But you're, it's the heart of the issue. And the whole counsel of God is what is preached in this pulpit. Meaning we don't shy away from the heart things. Dispensationalism. Versus all millennialism and post-millennialist. I have to say that now because I guess it's catching on for some of you. Those are secondary issues. Now, they're big secondary issues to me because I think your interpretation of Scripture. But you can come to this church and have differing views and be a member here, take the Lord's Supper, you should respect your brothers and sisters in Christ who may disagree with you on, on eschatological issues. We teach the whole counsel of God. We're not going to shy away from it. We're not going to shy away from covenant theology and other things that are deep within scriptures. But that's not the heartbeat of the gospel. Do you have friends that don't go to this church who believe differently from you? You do. And I hope you love them and hug them and and you're real nice and try to help them come along to your view. I believe we're right or I wouldn't say it, right? I do believe I'm right. <laughs> if I didn't think I was right, I'd change my view. But at the same time, I understand that's not the heartbeat of the gospel. What we see clearly in Romans 5, that we have through Christ obtained access by faith into his grace, which we now stand and we rejoice in hope and the glory of God. That is the heartbeat of the gospel. You are justified by faith is the heartbeat of the gospel. Right? This is what Martin Luther says about justification. It's the article by which the church stands and falls. You get justification wrong, you perish forever. You get the rapture theory wrong, you don't perish forever, you just live your life wrongly. Right? I, I believe that. I believe it's a big deal, 
But you're not going to perish forever if you get eschatology wrong. You're going to perish forever if you don't understand the hermeneutics of the Old Testament. You'll perish forever if you don't understand that you're justified by faith and faith alone. If you bring your self-righteousness into the equation. John Calvin said justification is the hinge of the entire Reformation. Charles Spurgeon, he's my favorite preacher, he's passed away, I don't know him personally, but he says, any church which puts in the place of justification by faith in Christ another method of salvation is a harlot church. You got to love those 1689 London Baptist guys. When you read that, it's kind of like our confession, except they're always harping on the Roman Catholic Church. It's like, where did that come from? It's like they just have to put it in there just to let people know they're Protestant. I get it. But it's true. The heartbeat of the gospel is justification by faith. How you are made right with the holy God is the preeminent question anyone can ask themselves every single day. You should wake up every single day and go, how am I made right with the holy God? And it should floor you when you put your feet on the floor before you put your compression socks on, if you're old like me, right? Before you hit your feet on the floor, what are you saying? How am I made right with God? Because there's a holy and righteous God who deserves to crush you for your sin. And when you start thinking that way, you're thinking, he's crushed Jesus instead of me. Right? It almost seems as like all the relationships you have that maybe there's not as much peace as you would like. Eh, not that big of a deal. I deserve to go to hell and I'm not going. I can face the day. I can be thankful. I, I can love others the way God has called me to love others. That is the heartbeat of the gospel. And this is what Paul is speaking about is obtaining access by faith into his grace. You get that in Christ. It is something real tangible that you get that changes who you are it makes you see life completely differently and when people preach you'll hear pastor david even speak about this you almost preach as if it's too good to be true right dr martin lloyd jones as he's going through romans he says if you're preaching the gospel rightly you will be accused of being an antinomian and antinomian just means anti-law. Basically, what you're telling me then is if I believe in Christ, all the sins that I did in the past are forgiven, and anything I do in the future is forgiven. Yes. And oftentimes you'll hear preachers, and I almost did this like three weeks ago in the reading of the law. Well, we know sanctification is true and the Spirit comes because something inside of me was saying, but I said, no, you just leave it. Let it sit. The gospel saves you from all your sin, past, present, and future. And I know for a fact that you need to sound like one because Paul, in chapter 7, who's teaching 7? I know who's teaching 7. I won't get into it. I got the big smile on my face in the back. I think Rob's teaching 7 and then Tim's teaching 7. But when you get to chapter 7, after chapter 6, you're completely free. People are, well, you sound like an antinomian. You could just do anything you want to do. And Paul's like, well, listen, the things I don't want to do, I do. There's some struggles. Paul knew what he sounded like. So if you walk around telling people the heartbeat of the gospel is all your sins are forgiven, you're like, what if they go off and do whatever they want? You're, you know you're preaching the right gospel. Now, does it mean that we don't believe in sanctification? We believe it. 
But the heartbeat of the gospel is your sins are forgiven. And something inside of the reform, well, we got to talk about sanctification. I I know, I know. But that's the heartbeat of the gospel. Your sins are forgiven. Rejoicing in our sufferings, verse 3 through 5. Because all your sins are forgiven through faith, now you can do something that's super odd. Rejoice in your sufferings. Let's, let's read verses 3 through 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts and through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I want to give you a background of why Paul speaks about boasting so often. You see it in Ephesians 2, right? Do not boast. You see it in other passages where we need to boast in Christ. Why is boasting and Paul kind of going hand in hand? Well, you need to understand the culture here, why he writes this. The background to rejoicing in the Greco-Roman world. One, it was in this context that ancient Greeks and Romans thought nothing of praising themselves in public, better still, getting others to praise them. Have you noticed that? The Pharisees, and Jesus speaks about that a little bit, about praising yourselves. Even in Homer's Iliad, but one person should have been the better fighter than the other person. I forget his name. That's the reason I won't mention it. It crossed my mind. I put that in there. But, but we see it even in Homer's Iliad that one man thought he was better than the other. He was not getting the accolades, and that's the reason we have the book and the big war taking place. Josephus... And his autobiography, I don't know if you've ever read that before, but he spends like the first, he numbers it just like one, two, three, four, five. He spends almost the first page talking about how great he is. Why? Because this was the culture of the day. You boast about who your family is, though they're not noble. He does defend them. and They should be noble, basically, and how great they are. This was the culture. In Greek culture, honor and shame is everything to them. Five. The priority of death with honor is preferable to the life of shame. They would rather die with honor than live a life with shame. You see this sometimes in in warm uh, movies, but this is the way they live their life. It was very common for them to talk about how great they were and their accomplishments. Honor was, this is uh, Nasali, which is a historical scholar of the time, not a Christian, but he says, Honor was universally regarded as the ultimate asset for human beings and shame the ultimate deficit. So much so that academics frequently refer to Egyptian, Greek, and Roman societies simply as honor-shame cultures. Much of life revolved around ensuring you and your family received public honor and avoided public shame. Now, that is the culture that Paul is preaching in. How do many in America today continue the tradition of honor and shame.
no, no, let me tell you how it speaks to me. Before I was a Christian, I saw myself as this great, great strength athlete, but I realized I was afraid of everything. I didn't try things because I was afraid to fail. I knew people would laugh at me and mock me. And then I came to the Lord. I didn't care about failing anymore. Like, almost like, and this is so stupid, home alone, I'm not afraid anymore, right? It's like, I wasn't. I wasn't afraid to fail. Uh, and, I, and I realized that in our culture, oftentimes people are afraid to fail because you're afraid of what people will think of you. Uh, you. You want to be seen in some established light. As we'll see tonight, even Jeremiah dealt with that, the prophet. In chapter 20, people are mocking him. They're trying to kill you, Jeremiah. That's not what hurt him. What hurt him was what other people thought of him in his ministry. Same thing with us every day. We want to be seen sometimes. How many people do you know live as if they're millionaires, but they have no money in the bank? <laughs> right? Like they're just, I mean, they have everything's on credit, but they have to have the look. Right? That's a part of the honor and shame society that we live in. Right? You have to be somebody. You have to look at yourself in a certain way. How does hope not allow us to be shamed? I know it's an odd question, but I've thought about it a lot. Yes. It's a good answer. You're a child of the king. You you don't have any shame at all. Honor and shame is so crucial in understanding the the parable of the prodigal son. Remember the son that went off and spent all his money, or all his dad's inheritance on what? Wine, women, dancing. I'm sure there was dancing involved. <laughs> yeah, R-rated movies, exactly. He comes home, and what did the father do? The father ran out and met him. Why? Because typically people would line up and there would be shame. Yelling and screaming, shame the person, shame the person. Not with the father. The father does not allow his people to be shamed. He runs and meets them. This is the type of privileges we have in Christ. There is no shame. You should have no shame of your past. You should have no shame of your past sins. They're forgiven in Christ. All of them. Past, they are forgiven in Christ. The moment we think, well, you know, we should feel... No, 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 no. The blood of Jesus is so potent that it saves us from everything. There should be no shame. This is the reason we can come to church and worship. We can take the Lord's Supper because, you know what, we have no shame. The Savior has saved us from our sins. This is how hope, because of our hope in Christ, we don't have any shame anymore. We don't have to look as if we're worse people. No, you know what? We all deserve hell equally. When we take the Lord's Supper today, we're all saying we're a bunch of rotten sinners. But 
We have been saved by the blood of Jesus. And now we have access to the holy, righteous throne of God. This is why we get excited about sacraments in the Presbyterian Church. We're going to have another sacrament this evening that God makes promises and he saves people and we're not raised in a Muslim home or some raised in some Mormon home. We're raised in Christian home. And you know what? Praise the Lord for that, that some of you were converted not in a Christian home. Praise the Lord for that also. But some of you had a lot of opportunities and this is very exciting. We'll see that tonight. But let's go back to Sunday school. David's going to be like, hey, I see him in the back. This is, if you see David, that's, 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 preparation for you're about to get cut off I know what that means dying for our enemies verses 6 through 8 for while we were still weak at the right time Christ died for the ungodly for one would scarcely die for a righteous person though perhaps for a good person one may dare to even die but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners Christ died for us there's been heroic stories of sacrifice throughout our lives. If you look at the front left picture, there's a man in Minnesota who jumped in to save his nephew from drowning, and he himself drowned. That was, if you've got good eyes, June 26, 2018. August 26, 2016, this, this mother in Utah saved her um, son from drowning. Jason Dunham was a Marine, somebody threw a grenade, I believe this is 2011, and instead of having his, his fellow Marines die, he jumped on the grenade. Literally jumped on the grenade to save his fellow Marines. And of course, you've all seen the pictures, and if you've ever been to New York City, I encourage you to go to the 9-11 Museum of all the first responders. Instead of running away, they ran up, they ran to the danger. And it's a moving place. It really completely is moving. But how is dying for your countrymen or your family different than dying for your sworn enemy? How is it different? It does. I think every man in here we would all die for our spouse and our children, our family. Women, you would do the same for your kids. That mama, you got a mama bear. Yeah, that's true. All right, you'd do anything to save your kids. If an intruder came in this room, there's not a man in this room that wouldn't stand up and try to take him down. Why? Because we love our church people. Military men, you understand what it's like. First responders, you know, you may not like the person, but you've taken a vow and you love doing it. You love rescuing and saving people. You'll go into the flames and the fire. But to go into someone who says, I hate you, you're my enemy. That's a whole different level. This is what Paul is speaking about here. If I read it rightly, and I think I'm reading it rightly. Yeah, you may die. People will die for good people and other people. But dying for your enemy, whole different game. That's what Jesus did. He died for his enemy. You were an enemy of God. This, this is what Paul keeps reminding us. Chapter 1, 2, lot of 3. You were enemies of God, and yet he still loved you enough to die for you. This is the reason we worship Jesus. This is the reason we're going to sing to him. This is when you sing today, I want you to sing with a little more gusto, because you're like, he loved me when I was an enemy? Oh, yeah. Sing a little, high, sing a little bit louder. 
You may not even like the songs today. Whatever. I know the person that selects them. It's okay. Sing a little bit louder. They're going to be about Jesus. Let's go with the last three and a half minutes. What are we saved from? Uh, people use the phrase, I'm saved quite often. What do they mean when they typically say, I'm saved? What do they mean they're saved from? What should they mean? Let's just cut to the chase. What should they mean? I'm sorry. The wrath of God. You'll, you'll see this. Paul makes it very clear in verse 10. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Right? We are saved. It's verse 9. Sorry, we have been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. This is an eschatological wrath. God is coming to make all wrongs right. We are saved from that. You'll never have to face that in a million years. As I wrap this up, reconciliation is not a legal term, just so you know. Justification is a legal term. Who owns the title to the deed of your house? Reconciliation is a family term, a familiar term. This is a, a, a relationship term. When we have been reconciled to God, it's a family room setting. It's an adoption term. Paul doesn't always just speak legally. And the Puritans, if you read the Puritans, you'll understand they were not cold-hearted, orthodox, all we care about is orthodoxy. no. They love doctrine, but they love doctrine so much that it was about a relationship with Christ to them. It was about that passionate love for Jesus that when they were excited to take sacraments, they were excited to sing. It wasn't cold, dead orthodoxy because it was a reconciliation where they are with Christ. And I pray that this lesson would encourage you to say, you know what? God has done so much for me through Jesus Christ. I want to know him more. And you're saying, you're sounding like a big evangelical. Whatever, just call me a Puritan. I'll take it. To love him more, to spend time with him more, to actively seek the Lord and enjoy. This isn't, we're just not checking a box when we come here today. We are worshiping the Lord Almighty and worshiping his son. And these are all the privileges you have in Christ. A very potent verses, and they're not very difficult to understand. The question is, are you going to believe them and accept them? That's the hard part. You mean, I do nothing? Nothing. Just trust the Lord. Just believe in his son. That's it? That's it? Let's pray.